This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, our guests today are Tom Stewart and Patricia O'Connell, and we're going to talk to them about their book, Wu, Wow, and Win, Service Design, Strategy, and the Art of Customer Delight. Uh, Tom and Patricia, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Oh, thank you for having us. Delighted to be here, McCool. Great. Well, uh, maybe we can start with you, Patricia, with the first question. What inspired you to write this book? I confess I had never heard of service design until four years ago. And I was working with a client, the Savannah College of Art and Design, and they started talking about service design classes. And I said, what's that? And they said, service design is when we teach people how to imagine and think through and then design a customer experience. They said people think about user experience. There's been a lot of emphasis on user experience because of all the emphasis on things going online. But they said when you walk into a restaurant, you walk into a hotel, you interact with a company, you go into the lobby of a business, Every step of that interaction between you and that company, that brand, that business, needs to be designed in order to give you a satisfactory customer experience. And I thought, this is absolutely fascinating. And I started looking around, and I realized that there was not a lot written on that for for the service market. There's a lot about design from manufacturing, and I realized that there was really a gap here to, to connect the idea of service to strategy, and that's part of where Tom came in. And what inspired me to write the book was Patricia, obviously. No, but, but seriously, what, one of the things that's really interesting is when you think about it, and particularly in service businesses, and you know that a lot of what we know about management comes from automobile assembly plants and you know, Deming and, 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 and Frederick Taylor and, 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 and all of that. Um, but, but when it comes to a, 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 a service, these things need to be, can be, should be designed as carefully as products are. And when you think about it, this is also, this is the strategy connection, that's the differentiation, really. And more and more studies are starting to show this, that the differentiation is not the product or the service per se, it's not price, it's the experience you have, what it's like to go into that restaurant, what it's like to work with that law firm. And it goes from, from you know, B to B to B to C and in all areas. And it also connects to what it's like to go to that auto dealership. And, and that, what it's like, I mean, that's the strategic point. And by the way, that's really hard to copy. I can match you on price and I can match you on how many thread counts are on the sheets in the hotel. But what it's like is 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 a different is a strate- point of strategic differentiation that's hard to beat. I'd like to come back to the question of strategy in a bit, but what you said reminded me of something really fascinating that I read right at the beginning of your book. Uh, you start with this astonishing fact that most companies are not set up to design services well, and I was wondering why not. Well, you know, I think it's partly that. In many respects, they, this first of all, the discipline is relatively new, and the idea of I'm mean, just in the management literature, managing services has been done by analogy with managing manufacturing for a long time. So I think that's part of it. But I think, and Patricia, pick on this, pick up on this because you're really smart about it. And uh, I'll, I'll, so much of what companies do is about organizing internal operations. 
But when it comes to services, the act of production is with the customer. It's not in the factory and then we hand it to the customer. So the act of production has the, the you're right there with me when it happens. The customer is co-creating the experience. One thing we like to say is products are about handoffs. Services are about handshakes. A service requires the participation of both parties. And that is a very different thing than what we know about products and manufacturing. And that's why there has been so little written about it. And also the shift in our economy is now such that 80% of our economy is services-based. Now, recognize that that is everything other than agricultural, agriculture, manufacturing, and mining. So that really is just about everything people have multiple interactions with every day, whether it's B2B, B2C, whether it's something mundane, getting a cup of coffee, whether it's something really important, calling your insurance company. I mean, I can't even imagine what, how hard it must be for the insurance companies right now to try to deliver good customer experiences to, you know, the poor people in, in Texas. Mm -hmm. and, and people so often confuse customer service with customer experience. And those are two very, very different things. Customer service is something you do. Usually it's designed around when something has gone wrong. Customer experience is the totality of my interaction with you. From the moment I first come across your your name, whether I Google you know, a service that I'm looking for, whether I someone... I see an ad on television, yeah. yeah. To when I'm done, whenever our... Our business is finished. So, uh, you hear a lot about you know, things like design thinking these mm -hmm. days or uh, industrial design, manufacturing design, or designing user experiences. Uh, what is, how, how do you separate service design from some, some of these other buzzwords that you hear about design? And is that helping I or hurting separate the I wouldn't integrate them. I mean, but, but, but I think that's one of the things that, that, that's interesting. And in fact, you know, Tim Brown of IDEO, when we were talking to him, said that, that if you think about it, the ATM, which is 50 years old this year, um, was one of the first cases where people had to design in a thoughtful way how the customer interacted with, you know, in this case, the user interface of an ATM. Before that, the user interface of the bank was, you know, the smiling teller behind the cage and that person did all the touching and computer, gen you know, all, all the work with the bank systems. So, so design thinking is a way of approaching problems. Industrial design is a way, of course, of making beautiful and functional designs. And service design takes, some, takes design thinking and takes some of the same sort of aesthetic, if you will, of, of industrial design, but says, how do we use that to apply to this train journey? this ATM experience, this, you know, how, do, how what, what are we trying to convey with the look and feel of what's happening in our interaction in the store, in the, in the office, or whatever it might be? And actually, something we include in service design is also service delivery, right. because design without the ability to execute on it is really meaningless. That's part of that handshake. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, in the course of the researching and writing the book, uh, which are some of the companies that you encounter that are really good at this? 
Uh, could you offer some examples and what can others learn from their from the way they went about this exercise? I think there were a few, well, there, there were many terrific companies that we wrote about ranging from, you know, strict services companies, a company like Weber Shannon, which was a PR and strategic communications company, to Warby Parker, UPenn, started by UPenn alums, um, you know, with the eyeglasses. But one of the classic examples we use to explain service design really quickly is Starbucks versus Dunkin' Donuts. Who's a Starbucks person? Who's a Dunkin' Donuts person? And people usually have a very strong preference. And ostensibly, they're both selling the same thing. They're selling coffee. But that's really not what they're selling. They're selling two very different experiences. Dunkin' is a grab-and-go. There's a reason the slogan is, America runs on Dunkin'. You know, the logo is, is very hot, hot pink, hot green. Starbucks is much more designed about being relaxed and leisurely. It's not for the person who who wants to get up and go. And you you know there were there were new companies like Stitch Fix, uh, which which even since we wrote the book has evolved. At the time that we were doing the book, it only did women's clothing. It now includes men. Uh, Edmonds, the the car buying service, which has evolved so much. They're a great example of a company that has just kept on evolving. They started as you know, almost a blue book. Yeah, kind of we also we also looked at an airline, Surf Air, which is a subscription, um, all you can all you can fly air service on uh, on the West Coast in California. We looked at a hospital system, ThetaCare, in northern Wisconsin. Uh, some of the trickiest. I mean, we all know how badly the design of medical care services is, and these guys applying the Toyota production system have actually redesigned hospital service. So we looked across a whole. A whole spectrum, and and and, but this, the Starbucks Duncan example is wonderful. We even were talking to an audience in Seattle once and asked for show of hands, who's a Duncan person, who's a Starbucks person? You know, one person. I'm a Duncan person. But if you think about it, it's really interesting. You know, at Starbucks, the seating is laid back, and at Duncan, there are little stools if there's anything at all. So, these are examples of how you're selling coffee. You're selling better than average coffee, but what you're doing is creating two very different experiences, and people are in one camp or the other. There are not very many people who say, whichever is closest. That's, they have a preference, and that preference is because the experience is different, and it's designed that way very, very consciously on both sides. I think one of the fun things that we also discovered, intuitively we believed this, but our research bore it out, was that the principles of service design hold across whether it's B2B, B2C, and across industries. I'm glad you mentioned the principles because that's exactly what I wanted to come to next. So you identify among all the examples that you gave that there are some common principles that these companies seem to follow, which makes them good at designing uh, effective uh, uh, services or service experiences. Uh, and you start with... Uh, you take the odd numbers and I'll take the even. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are five. There are yes. five of them. All right. And you start with the first, which is that the customer is always right, or, or, and, and that the, but you have to make sure the customer is right for you. Yes. So could you... Ex well, Let's talk there, about that. Because there's this idea. It's it's one of the first cliches anyone who's ever worked in a shop in service of any kind hears that the customer is always right. And you know something that's really not true. If I go to McDonald's, I have no business asking for a hamburger medium rare. That's not what they are designed to do. Right. 
I am the wrong customer. Maybe just at that moment, there are times I'm perfectly happy to go to McDonald's and get what's on the menu. But if I want something very specific and custom made, that's not the place for me to go. If I want a luxury shopping experience, I should not go to TJ Maxx. Just as if I'm looking for a bargain, I shouldn't go to Barney's. So in those circumstances, I'm not the right customer. And it is incumbent upon both the customer and the company to ensure, and that's part of that co-creation we were mm -hmm. talking about, is first of all, companies have, have to do two things. They have to decide who the right customer is and be diligent about serving those customers well. And they also have to be good about communicating who they are. And that's with everything from their branding to the way they look to the experience that you have when you go on their website or whether you go into their store, the people you encounter. You know, there's a very different feel when you walk into a Hyatt Regency versus an Andaz, which is another Hyatt brand. Andaz is their hip, you know, sleeker brand where everyone's sort of dressed in black and someone's going to check you in with an iPad. You go into the Hyatt, Hyatt Regency and there's going to be a big ornate desk and, you know, people in sort of old-fashioned uniforms. And those are two different experiences. If I'm looking for this sleek hip, I, I want to feel so, so cool. I shouldn't be at the Hyatt Regency. I'll get a very different kind of experience. It'll be a luxury experience, but it'll be very different. So, so customers then also have to understand what they are buying. And they need to understand that they should only, they need to recognize whether or not they are the right customer in a given situation. So what you just said reminds me a lot of some very interesting research that has been going on at Wharton. Uh, in the marketing department led by Professor Pete Fader mm -hmm. on customer centricity. Who we interviewed for yeah, the book. Yeah, and, 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 he, and he actually does, he makes that point that, you know, customer centricity part, partly depends on your own center of gravity, too, that you want to find the right thing. I mean, we were talking to some people in one professional services firm, actually, and we did, we did a mini survey of some professional services firms. And one of the things they said is a big problem is that they are lured from their sweet spot by clients who ask them to do things that aren't really – because they want to be customer-centric, but they're sort of getting the, – the, the customers putting them on the wrong foot. Uh, and, and it's hard to say no. Our second principle, which is, is, is don't surprise and delight, just delight, uh, is, is sort of expands or, 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 or sort of – is, is another turn of the crank around, around that idea. And one of the things we, we realized is that the, you know, people say surprise and delight, surprise and delight. Surprise. What are you, you know, our point is focus on delight. And delight is meeting expectations every time. Now, if you want to put a you know, maraschino cherry on top of the sundae, Fine, but get the Sunday right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the problem with that surprise and delight thing is it starts putting the monkey on the individual employee's back. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't focus on reliably, robustly delivering on those promises that you make and that your customer expects. Um, I, I think it's Francis Fry at Harvard Business School who's. who's now at Uber. Uh, that's right, that's right. Who, uh, who, who says that. Um, that, that if you're doing this, you're creating sort of uh, – you're almost institutionalizing the inability to do what, you, what your customers expect constantly. And so that's our, our second principle. Uh, talk about the third principle? The third principle is great service should not require heroics either on the part of the employee or the customer. So this then is an extension of what 
you were just talking about. So it's about consistency. And when I'm delivering a service, so now I'm in the company's seat, I need to know what I'm doing, and I should be able to do it reliably, repeatably, scalably, and profitably. And when you start requiring the heroics, it means that something has gone wrong with the design. Look, I'm not talking about emergency situations. Of course, you deal with emergency situations. But if you find yourself constantly running around, you know, like the fire alarm has just gone off, something is wrong. You were either not designing your services properly, you're not communicating the expectations appropriately to the customers, or you are being lured away from your sweet spot. And then that's a strategy problem. So these heroics are an indication to you of something's wrong. Now, from the customer's perspective, it should not be impossible for me to get what you promised me. And again, when when you see consistent customer complaints, that's also a signal to you. We call those, um, we have um, ah moments. That ah moment is, you know, when a customer knows that they're in good hands and they know that they're in your hands. You know, contrast those with owl moments. The owl moments are, (laughs) so the owl moments are the things that companies need to look at. Those are the things that customers complain about. And that is a signal that something is wrong. Either for some reason you're attracting the wrong customers or you are, you don't have your services designed in such a way that it's easy for customers to get what they want, need, and have a right to expect from you. And are you easy to do business with, right? I mean, it's a simple question and most companies don't actually systematically ask it. And what is an aha moment? (sighs) An aha moment is when (laughs) I get it. I, as the seller, say, aha, I know how this works. I see the pain point. I see the aha moment. I know how to fix the pain point. I know how to create the aha moment. I understand what we're trying to do here and how to design it. Um, This is getting complicated in a world of Omnichannel on the one hand. This is the fourth principle. That's the fourth principle. The fourth principle is that you've got to be able to deliver to your clients or customers at at every point on the journey and in every channel. So whether I'm on the web, on the phone, in their store, it should feel like I'm in your hands. Um, And and this, what people are now sometimes trying to call even a post-channel world is, 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 is is, is, is critical, and we see all kinds of companies screwing up. And in some cases, it's because, by the way, they're still dealing with old computer stacks that, and the middleware isn't very good. Sometimes it's simply a technical issue. Sometimes it's an issue of silos and failure to make handoffs. Classically, for a long time, it's been an issue of the analog guys and the web guys who just don't connect. And that's complicated even more because it's not just the stuff under my control as a seller. But in service environments, I'm usually working in an ecosystem. It's bad enough what the airlines can do to me. But then add TSA, the airports, the traffic, you know, the, the, the transportation system to the airport. You know, there's a whole ecosystem built around these things. And so even one of the biggest challenges in service design is to work with ecosystem partners where you may not have authority, but to try to sort of collectively work together to create an experience that you all want to create for the customers you want to serve. And should we talk about the the fifth principle? The fifth principle is you're never done. Yes. And that's really important because 
it's not a static thing. People's expectations will change, products will change, markets will change, your strategy will change, and you've got to adapt to those things. And there's a fine line between you're never done and, as we were saying, distorting yourself outside your sweet spot so mm-hmm. that you're no longer recognizable as to who you are. And, and that's why it really does come down to service design needs to be part of the strategic fabric of the company. All these decisions about service, you know, too often, as we say, it's lumped in with, with customers, the customer service department, which is not sufficient, or people think of it only as a function of marketing. And marketing is certainly a department that has responsibility for helping to create the notion of what that brand promise is. But strategy is about deciding what that brand promise is going to be. There's another thing about this innovation point, which is that it's another difference between products and services, right? In products, you know, it's Gyro Gearloose in the lab with the white coat. And the, I mean, innovation takes place in a place, generally, in a, in a lab. But in services, innovation can take place all across the value chain. So how do you manage it? How do you keep it coherent so they're not running off in different directions? And how do you sort of give these sort of innovation skills to people who may not actually think of themselves as being innovators. So that's a really interesting organizational and strategic question, is the management of innovation and services, which is different from that in products. I I wonder if we could now dive more deeply into the relationship you see between strategy and service design. Uh, How can doing service design well help you develop a really strong competitive strategy that can take you forward? You know, we we created in the book um, uh, a, a, a set of nine archetypes. Um, and they're basically expressions of value propositions. So one of the archetypes is the trendsetter. You know, we're, we're, we are the apple of whatever industry is. Uh, another is the bargain. We're the Walmart of whatever industry is. Uh, another is the classic. We're the best. You know, we're the Mercedes of the Cadillac of whatever it is. And there are, there are, no, there are nine of them, and you can find almost all of them in every industry. Um, But if you think about these archetypes as expressions of a value proposition, that means they are actually sort of, they're a strategy. Our strategy is to be the safe choice. Our strategy is to be the best, whatever it is. And these sort of help you envision then you know, value proposition and strategy are pretty closely related, right? These help you envision what how we're going to take that value proposition and manifest it in the experience customers have and also in the tangible evidence of that experience, the look and feel, the things that customers can look at and say, yes, that's what this is going to be. And I think when you're there, you know, that's really a strategic conversation and having one of those archetypes in mind, it helps you I mean, strategy is partly the art of saying no, right? What you're not doing and the customers you're not serving. And, and having those archetypes in mind help you think, helps you think, no, this, this isn't us. But this is us. We can do this. And this is what it means for the organization as a whole and for the customers we seek. Uh, Patricia, I wonder if you could um, uh, tell us uh, a little bit about what are the biggest mistakes you find companies make uh, in, in coming up with uh, service design? What, what, what did you find in your research? Well, I will say one of the things we did do is we tried to focus a lot on the companies who were doing it right. Mm-hmm. 
which isn't to say that there are only happy stories out there. There are a lot of companies that aren't doing it right. But I think a few of the things that we all see just from our own experiences on a day-to-day basis is people just, they just don't walk in the customer's shoes, literally. You know, try to be your own customer. That's that's part of how you find out if you're easy to do business with. People just don't think it through. Um, you know, crazy things that you'll see that that just make no sense. That why is why do I have to walk from here to there to get something done when it would, when logic would flow that I need to only go from here to there? It's not even about all the things I'm going to do from here to there. It's just it's just a waste of my time. Um, it's and it's. They also, again, they're not firm enough about their strategy. And I think the biggest mistake, though, and I think this is one of the really fundamental things we've tried to do with the book, is help companies feel empowered. I think in an age of social media, and it's too easy for customers to just go online and tweet, you know, I've had a really bad experience with with X and such, and then so many customer service goes, oh, my God, we better reach out to this person because there's going to be, what if this goes viral? Companies need to feel empowered to be able to make these strategic decisions. Yeah. I think Patricia's mentioned it several times. One of the biggest mistakes companies make is they confuse customer service. I'm calling up, I got a problem, with customer experience. And, and, and you know, customer service is at the end, and that's an imp- it's important to make a good last impression. But, but that's, that's, you know, failing to see the whole customer journey, and as Patricia said, to walk in the customer's shoes, and then failing to... Um, to, to make that co- as coherent as possible, I think those are the, are, are two of the two of the biggest mistakes that we see companies make. Another way of looking at it is we mentioned five principles, you know, and it's the it's the violation of those five principles, you know, saying yes to everything every customer asks you asks you to do, you know, not being coherent, not being innovative, you know, requiring heroic efforts or making your customers work too hard. Those are the, you know, those principles, um, the the flip side of those principles is what we see too darn many companies doing all the time. And focus on surprise instead of delight. Exactly. You know, I ask, why should good service be a surprise? Right. Now, if uh, companies want to become better at uh, service design, what advice would you give them? How how, how can they become better at this? I think they need to be willing to be honest with themselves. It, it is a gut check, and it's not always pretty. And I think they really need to make sure that it is going into the really decision-level making of the organization. Mm-hmm. We, had a, we, we created a little equation in, in Woo, Wow, and Win, and that's that customer delight is the product of the customer's experience and technical excellence, experience times excellence. And we put five points under each one of those things, empathy and engineering and, and the economics of it, and, and created a, a quiz. I mean, you can pay a, a report card. So, so I think to, you know, the, being honest with yourself sometimes requires let's sit down and audit. And that report card is a way to audit, and you can sit down and you can take it within your management team, take it with a diagonal slice of the organization, ask some of your customers or clients to rate you, and then you can get you can get a report card, and from there, you can begin to say, this is what's wrong. Another thing is this idea of charting the customer journey. You know, have we looked at that journey, and what's gonna happen? 
what is my customer experiencing at each point? What do we want the whole journey to be like? You know, the classic, the bargain. What, what do we want the whole journey to be like? And what's happening at the key moments along that? If you can do those two things, audit and map, and you're going to have map, a good start. And when you're mapping, you have to map both on stage and off stage, if you will. Yeah, right. You know, what the customer sees, what the customer experiences, and then what's happening off stage to make that possible. Or to screw it up. <laughs> yes. So I say, I'd like to focus on the positive. <laughs> well, let, let, let's uh, have one last question. That is, um, uh, are there any questions that you wanted to answer in this book but you didn't get to? So what, 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 what's coming up next now that you've done this? I think something we realized is that the principles also apply internally as strongly as they do externally. And I think it will it will be really interesting to explore it from the from the inside perspective as opposed to the outside perspective because your employees are stakeholders as well. You know, this is focused mostly on the external stakeholders, but I think we'd like to focus some more on the internal stakeholders and creating mm-hmm. how to create a good service culture. Yeah, and you know, Gene Meister is doing some interesting stuff on the employee experience. And if you think about the employee experience and the customer experience, and think about that point that Patricia made that services are handshakes. So an employee or a group of employees is interacting. You know. So looking at those two sides, the cult, a culture that creates a great experience and a great experience that then feeds off of that, uh, I think that's something that we that we would like to learn a lot. In fact, you might about. find that that uh, one leads to the other. Precisely, companies Precisely. that have be. very happy employees right. will automatically yes, right. you know, it, well, make it, the it, customers the service, happy. That old research on the service value chain suggests that, and then if you think about that in conjunction with this idea of experience, ooh, that gives you a whole new way to think about that classic insight. Well, Tom, Patricia, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton about your book. This has been a great experience, Michael. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.